Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hi, Dr. Taylor. Welcome. Hi, Rena. Thank you. So let's get started. Um, we'd love to first have you just introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah. Um, so I am a naturopathic physician. I was um, graduated from the National College of Natural Medicine, now known as the Natural University of Natural Medicine, Na- National University of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon, a few years back. And I've been um, working primarily um, in the area of uh, functional and natural medicine in terms of overall digestive health. So my big focus has been in gastroenterology, and I've been lucky enough to, be, to have been mentored by some leaders in the field, including Dr. Allison Seebecker, who many of your listeners and readers might know about, and um, Dr. Steven Sandberg-Lewis-Bolf, um, who's, who's been um, close mentors and, and amazing resources for me during my education and my, my first few years here in practice. Those are definitely some amazing giants in the industry, and you are truly privileged to have um, have worked with them, and I can uh, personally vouch for how amazing you are. So thank you again for taking the time today. So the first mm-hmm. question that we have is we are seeing an almost epidemic in gut. Dr. Taylor, what's driving this op- epidemic, and especially as it pertains to teens? Um, there are so many teens that I know that are suffering from uh, colitis, from Crohn's, from just uh, serious gut issues. What's going on? That's a really great question, Rena, and a really big one. Um, I think the short answer is that we don't really know <laughs> what what's necessarily happening. Happening, but there are a lot of really great theories out there. I think probably maybe one of the most interesting theories is. Um, kind of recognizing how our world has changed um, in the last 100 years, last 50 years, last 25 years even. Um, the way that we're brought into this world is different. More and more children are being born via cesarean section versus vaginal birth. More and more of those children are being born via hospital um, where they're getting exposed to microflora that maybe we weren't typically being. You know, we normally, our guts are normally seeded um, with microflora from our mom's vaginal canal and not from the hospital setting. So that's definitely one component. Um, rates of breastfeeding have changed over time, and, and one really a key uh, feature of not only maturing our gut microbiome, but also maturing our gut health, the lining of our gut, is actually breast milk and what it contains. So that's another key component. Um, additionally, the way we eat has changed. We eat a lot more processed food these days, a lot less um, whole fruits and vegetables, and we get a lot more exposures via our food sources, things like pesticides, as well as other chemicals in our environment, xenoestrogens, xenobiotics, just generally as a class that can really disrupt the normal healthy functioning of our gut. Um, those are just a few things, and I'd add probably on top of that, and especially when it comes to kids and teens, we see a lot of different lifestyle in children and teens these days. Um, kids are so much busier than they ever have been before, right? They play three varsity sports and are on honor council and do, you know, X, Y, and Z extracurricular activities or busy applying for colleges and stress levels are high. Um, kids previously played outside, right? A lot more downtime, a lot more unstructured time. They got exposed, you know, they played in the dirt and were exposed to everything there. Um, 
and just generally had lower stress levels overall. And I think that has a profound impact not only on our digestive health, health, but also our immune system health, which we can't really separate from a lot of these digestive conditions. Wow, that sort of does sound like uh, the making of a disaster. And I can personally <laughs> vouch for the fact that I have a teen in the house who meets all the things you've just mentioned from playing sports and being ultra-stressed. So I think what you're saying is that, to a large extent, stress does contribute to these gut diseases. Is that true? Hugely, yeah. And more and more research is coming out to really explain the mechanisms behind why. But our immune system can't function the same way under chronic stress. Our digestive system can't function the same way under chronic stress. And that has big implications in in terms of disease development and progression, even from a really young age. So does that mean that if I can't get my teen to control her stress, she can't actually heal from one of these gut diseases? I think it's a a huge stumbling block for many people in terms of getting well. Um, It's absolutely possible to help people um, decrease their symptoms, um, either through natural or conventional means. Um, Also possible um, to to help conditions sort of go into remission. using pharmacologic methods most frequently um, absolutely can help it happen when you don't address the, when you don't address the stress component but I find that if people really want to heal if they really want to be able to get well long term and avoid the use of these sorts of um, medicines long term and hopefully avoid you know a future con- future sort of disease diagnoses um, kind of later in life that addressing stress is is key and probably that one of the single best things, most important things they can do to truly get at the underlying cause, truly heal from their digestive conditions. Mm. Now, what are, given in this epidemic, what are the top diseases that you're seeing in the gut, the top five that you see in your practice? I mean, I hear mm-hmm. of Crohn's, colitis, candida, leaky gut, colon cancer, SIBO. What, yeah. what are the top five? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure what the top five are in terms of walking into a gastroenterologist's office, but typically what I see are a lot of functional gastrointestinal disorders. These are things that maybe you've um, been worked up by a gastroenterologist or a GI specialist, and they've said, well, we, you have constipation or you have diarrhea or you have bloating, but we don't, you know, we don't necessarily, we can't find a, a smoking gun, you know, your colonoscopy comes back normal, your endoscopy comes back normal, your stool test and your blood work comes back normal or pretty normal. Um, and we, we think you have more of a functional gut disorder. It doesn't mean it's not real. It absolutely is real. But these are things that a lot of Americans and a lot of people worldwide suffer from. And this is things like irritable bowel syndrome, mm. uh, functional, functional constipation or functional diarrhea, um, symptoms like functional dys, uh, dyspepsia, um, which, a lot, which a number of people are getting diagnosed with, including children these days, um, gastroesophageal reflux disease or heartburn, really, really common that I see in my practice. And um, because I see a lot of those things, I also see a lot of, co- you know, infections um, or imbalances in digestive function in the gut that might be contributing to or causing these symptoms. So um, SIBO or small intestine bacterial overgrowth is a great example of an underlying overgrowth of normal bacteria in an area where they shouldn't be, the small intestine, contributing to symptoms of IBS. And and the studies are showing that a majority of individuals with IBS actually have SIBO, and that's what's contributing to their symptoms. Um, So it's it's an interesting um, 
revelation as of, as of recent, and a lot of good work is being done to kind of help people get better from their IBS by addressing their SIBO. IBS is definitely rampant, and in fact, I think a lot of us have forgotten what normal bowel movement should be. Yeah. A lot of us think that, you know, how we go is normal, like, oh, if I go once every two to three days, that's normal, or, oh, if I go three times a day and it's liquidy, that's normal. Tell our listeners, what's normal? What should it be? Uh, that's a good question. So um, through my through my sort of naturopathic training, we were we were told that anywhere from one to three well formed bowel movements that feel complete once you've had the bowel movement that don't contain things like undigested food, mucus, or um, blood would be considered sort of healthy bowel function. Now people are what's considered quote unquote normal is across the board, right? You said, you know, we've all redefined what normal is. So not everybody goes has that, but we're aiming for at least one healthy bowel movement each day. Got it. Yeah, constipation is definitely rampant, at least in my kids. And mm-hmm. I do blame food and the dehydration issues. Mm-hmm. Um, what what are the other typical shared symptoms of Crohn's colitis? And this actually question comes from someone who says, um, my husband was diagnosed with Crohn's. I'm worried I'm next. What are the mm-hmm. symptoms that I should be watching out for? Yeah. And how long does do these diseases take to develop? Sort of how long are they percolating? And what are those symptoms where the body's screaming uh, mm-hmm. before it becomes diagnosed as a specific illness like a Crohn's or a colitis? Yeah, it's a really good question. So Crohn's disease, and what I think you're referring to is ulcerative colitis, these are two conditions that are called under kind of under the category of inflammatory bowel disease. These are different than, than irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, but they're easily confused because they go by the, it goes by the acronym of IBD or inflammatory bowel disease. Um, the other challenge that makes them sort of difficult to understand as being different um, from IBS is that symptoms do overlap. It's not uncommon to have symptoms such as diarrhea, bloating, abdominal pain, and cramping. Um, very rarely, especially sometimes in Crohn's disease, there might be constipation. Um, and those can all be similar to um, individuals who have uh, irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. So it can be a little difficult to uncover, um, you know, what's going on. Inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, they are much more rare than IBS. Um, So they're much less less likely. They're lower on the differential. That being said, they're also much more, um, what I'd say, risky conditions. They come with with them, comes many more um, other complications that should be evaluated um, by, a, by a specialist, by a gastroenterologist or GI specialist to ensure that there's healthy, normal functioning of the gastrointestinal tract. And um, the probably the, most, the easiest way to differentiate the two if somebody's experiencing symptoms is often, though not always, often um, people with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis can have blood in their stool. So if blood is in their stool, um, that's definitely something to potentially get worked up um, it's not the most common cause of blood in the stool. That would be hemorrhoids, um, which are way more, much, much, very, very common. Um, yes. But definitely worth getting getting worked up if there's been if there's blood in the stool or there's been a sudden change in bowel movement, um, where one has gone from you know relatively normal or a tendency towards constipation, and now they're having many you know episodes of diarrhea, maybe some potential abdominal pain, et cetera. Um, I recommend that any of my patients, any or anybody I talk to who has um, 
digestive symptoms, that they don't wait, that they really do go and seek out, seek out care and get worked up to figure out what's, what's underlying um, because so many symptoms do overlap. And it can be hard to self, it's not generally not a good idea to try to self-diagnose regardless. Right, right. Well, I think the challenge that a lot of us have is, uh, you know, I'm a great example of someone who was having symptoms for years. Yeah. And I would go tell my primary care, look, I'm no longer able to digest basic foods. And she'd say, oh, you're just aging. It's just natural. Mm-hmm. Or, um, and, and so not just primary care, she then at one point got irritated with me asking her over and over again and said, fine, here, go talk to a GI. Mm-hmm. And that response was, again, similar, which is, because I didn't have um, constipation or diarrhea, I just wasn't digesting foods. And that was sort of mm-hmm. my very symptom, which lasted, I'd say, good two, three years before all the other symptoms started. But it was just that, that I just couldn't digest foods, and I started slowly taking foods out. There was really no workup. Now, does functional medicine provide an avenue for people like me where the GI and the primary care person says, there's really nothing wrong with you. You're just getting old. Take Beano or, you know, those mm. take Pums, like so those silly things, which really don't work. Um, if you have, if you're on the path to illness, I mean, if truly it is just a simple digestive issue, then those things work. But if those are not working, how mm-hmm. does functional medicine help someone like me then? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'd say before, before I dive into that, I would say that um, if you feel like your primary care doctor or your GI specialist you go to isn't listening or isn't providing you the care that you want, go see somebody else. Like, shop around. Like, you, you deserve to find a doctor that really works for you. Um, and I know uh, many, many uh, conventional primary care doctors and conventional um, uh, MD gastroenterologists who are fantastic, who really work hard to find what the underlying cause with their, um, to their patient's digestive concerns. So I'd say, one, be your own advocate, right? Find, find a doctor that works for you. And then if you feel like you want a little bit of an added or different um, perspective, let's say, you, you feel like you're really kind of hitting a dead end in terms of um, getting help, functional medicine can really provide you provide a different avenue. So functional medicine doctors, instead of necessarily looking for overt pathology, actual diagnosable diseases, we're often looking for um, imbalances, I'd say, you know, things that are maybe slightly off that are contributing to your symptoms that are not yet diagnosable diseases. A good example of this would be, you know, you have, we do something like comprehensive stool testing and we're looking for, you know, the balance of um, microbes in your gut and you have some, you know, imbalances there. Well, sometimes if we can fix those imbalances with changes in diet, probiotics, things like that, we can actually get you feeling quite a bit better um, from your condition. It wouldn't have received any sort of conventional diagnosis per se. So that's generally where I think functional medicine providers can really thrive. And we really do quite a lot of um, in in depth search to find out what's underlying your condition, as opposed to necessarily just treating symptoms. Um, I think that's where functional medicine providers really shine. So, if you feel like you're not getting the care you need, search out for somebody who really can connect you. That's a really good point. I think a lot of us don't do that. We assume yeah. that we only have access to one, and that if that person is God and if that person has given their mm-hmm. declaration, then that's it. And you're right. We we need to assume that that's not so and continue our search till we get our answers. To what right. extent, you know, you mentioned the comprehensive stool exam. To what extent do you see parasites as the cause? I hear the word parasite all over the place. Yeah. Oh, all my issues started after Cabo or all my issues started mm-hmm. after I went to India. 
Is there a correlation between, let's say, a parasite and an inflammatory bowel disease or other illnesses in the colon? There are great, there are great studies coming out that are showing the way that certain, certain infections and certain, not even infections, so not even just, you know, bacteria or viruses or parasites that shouldn't be there, but also um, normal flora can contribute to alterations in immune system function, alterations in digestive function, and actually some of these diseases. Um, so there's good research, and it's research that's currently ongoing. Um, I would say that it's very, very common for patients to present with digestive complaints following an infection of some sort, um, specifically that traveler's diarrhea, food poisoning, you know, something that, you know, they went to, went to Mexico and they drank, um, you know, a drink with some ice in it and they don't know where, you know, a water for the ice came from, really, really common. And we know now that a lot of that has to do with less, less about actually having a parasite. Indeed, some people can have parasitic gut infections that are causing their digestive complaints. Most common example might be things like Giardia, commonly, commonly um, picked up in, if somebody does a lot of camping, you know, in the backwoods, things like that. So that can be quite common. But more so is this previous gut infection that actually causes changes to the way that the, specifically the intestines move, their motility, and can predispose somebody to um, overgrowth overgrowth of yeast, overgrowth of bacteria, things like that, that can uh, cause a lot of the symptoms we're talking about with things like irritable bowel syndrome. Mm. So are you a big proponent of taking probiotics on a daily basis, whether it's in the form of a pill or um, chowing down on sauerkraut? It's really person-specific. Probiotics seem to work wonders for some people. They, it's, it's their cure-all. It, it changed everything for, for them, and others feel quite ill on probiotics. So it's a really, really a case-by-case basis. I almost encourage nearly every one of my patients, if they feel okay using fer- fermented foods, to do so. They're, they're food-based sources. We would be getting them, you know, in a varied diet, things like uh, 24-hour fermented yogurt, sauerkraut, kimchi, um, different forms of drinks, kombucha, you know, kefir, all of these things, uh, truly fermented, real fermented pickles, um, fantastic sources of fermented foods, and great sources of, of different types of bacteria. Um, and if you feel well on them, go for it. But also know that not everybody feels well on them. And if you don't, it might be worth kind of doing some more investigating to figure out why. Got it. Let's talk about SIBO in more depth um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, I, as you know, ended up being eventually diagnosed with SIBO eight months mm-hmm. into a pretty horrific health crisis, which, of course, is now completely healed. And um, I know a lot of my friends here, when we share symptoms, they, they're concerned that they have SIBO. Uh, yeah. would love to talk a little bit about SIBO in terms of, you know, talk about why does someone get SIBO? Let's start with that. Why does someone get SIBO? That's a great question. There's a lot of reasons why somebody can get small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, probably the most common is what we were just talking about, a, a type of food poisoning, traveler's diarrhea, stomach flu, some form of stomach bug that alters the motility of your small intestine. So instead of being able to have this nice sort of cleansing wave that moves through it um, periodically throughout the day and night called the migrating motor complex. 
that no longer functions um, to the same degree, and we end up with bacteria accumulating where they shouldn't be, right? We should have plenty of good flora in our large intestine and not a whole lot in our small intestine. Our small intestine is really meant for absorption, uh, for digestion, and not really meant to have a lot of bacteria there. They basically interfere with our ability to digest and absorb. So that's probably the most common cause, having had some historical food poisoning or traveler's diarrhea, stomach bugs that caused this alteration in motility. I'd say that most people um, who have onset of SIBO, even if they don't recall having had a food poisoning episode or stomach flu in the past, you know, maybe preceding their symptoms, many of them do. Um, in fact, and if you do follow-up testing, you can often find evidence of such. So it's an interesting one. Additionally, so that, that's kind of one class, those alterations in motility based on infections. So probably the, the other common contributors, um, and I would say that not, it's not just ever one thing, right? There's usually multiple things at play. And what I often see, see patients when they come in, you know, they say, kind of, it all started after this. And it happens to be a series of things, you know. Maybe, maybe their thyroid wasn't working quite right, and they got diagnosed with hypothyroidism. And maybe they were under some chronic stress. And then they got an infection. And then, you know, kind of a layered approach. But um, in addition to gut infections, hypothyroidism, like I mentioned, poor stomach acid production can be contributory. Testing mm -hmm. and mucosal immunity can be definitely contributory. And then things, like, things that form any scar tissue in the abdomen or things called adhesions um, can also be contributory to the development of SIBO. These are just a few of the many, many, many causes of uh, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And how do you diagnose it? So small intestine bacterial overgrowth, um, the gold standard for diagnosis is actually a duodenal culture. So the duodenum is the first early part of the small intestine. And in this gold standard diagnosis, you actually go in, collect a sample, and culture out the bacteria that are residing there and see if there are more than expected. Um, and this is, though it's what quote-unquote gold standard, meaning it's what's you know, seen as the most reliable um, methodology, it has some challenges. One, it's quite invasive, right? You have to undergo an endoscopic procedure to do so. And then there also is some concern that not only um, is there potential for great cross-contamination as the sample is removed up through the, through the mouth and potentially getting contaminated with micro, microflora, but the cultures themselves can be um, not necessarily the most reliable, right? There are some bacteria that might not culture out on the media and be reflected. So there's a lot of issues um, just sort of implementing that as a gold standard. So what's often done is follow-up instead of that method is actually breast testing. So actually doing a challenge test where we have somebody, you know, limit their fermentable carbohydrates and foods for the, you know, day, two days prior to the test and actually give them a sugar substrate that they drink and then we measure their gas production every 20 minutes or so for two to three hours. And that gas production is reflective of if there are bacteria in the small intestine, how, if, if they're um, fermenting that sugar, producing gases, and, and breathing those out basically ultimately, the person that's then breathing those out ultimately. So it's reflective. It's not a direct diagnosis, but a sort of indirect way of saying, is there, are there bacteria or something in the small intestine that's um, fermenting those sugars and producing gas? Got it. And so now once you've been diagnosed with it, what's the typical, and so those are the only two, right? The one's the very invasive, and the second is the, is the sugar test, the hydrogen breath test. 
Mm-hmm. What if you go to your GI and you request it and your GI says no, which as you know, not every GI is aware um, or is supportive of these uh, of the of these tests. I actually had to find um, it was the third GI that finally agreed, and uh, luckily their their lab had this available once a week. Mm-hmm. What do you recommend? Is there anything else anyone can do, or your recommendation is just find a GI that w- that's willing to do the hydrogen breath test? Yeah, there are there are some other physicians that use other ways of documenting um, bacterial overgrowth. Um, some some look at they say that they can kind of tell if there's small intestine bacterial overgrowth from stool tests. Others say that they can, um, there, there's actually some good evidence that there's a, a particular urine test that can be reflective of bacterial overgrowth. These tests, however, don't give us a sense of not the degree of overgrowth that's present. Um, I know in our work together, and um, I, I had mentioned to you, there are, um, there's some, you know, sort of anecdotal evidence in terms of um, our ability to effectively treat SIBO. The gas levels are quite high people might require multiple rounds of treatment before they start feeling better. And that's, um, I don't think, published anywhere as of yet, um, but just what we're seeing sort of in the clinic as we're, as we're working with people. So actually knowing the gas levels is really helpful because it reflects potentially the degree of overgrowth. Additionally, there are multiple types of bacteria, multiple sort of classes of bacteria that can cause SIBO, um, bacteria that produce hydrogen gas, but also bacteria that produce methane gas. Actually, they're not a bacteria, they're a a form of a microorganism called an archaea, but both of them can produce types of gases, and if we don't, if we are able to differentiate and say, you have, you know, just hydrogen producing overgrowth, or you have just methane producing, or you have a combination of both, that also guides treatment. So I really do encourage patients, if they can, to get a breath test to test both hydrogen and methane gas, and really find a provider that's willing to order that for them. That's a very good point. And so let's talk about me. I was diagnosed with incredibly high presence of both. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had to decide between the treatments for options for, of course, Rifaximin, which is an antibiotic, um, quite expensive, I might add, or mm-hmm. natural. How do you decide when to recommend antibiotics versus natural treatment for SIBO? Um, I actually don't usually decide. I let my patients decide. So I usually present the various options. Um, If you work with a functional medicine practitioner or a conventional doc who has some training in functional medicine, they'll be able to give you um, a a number of additional options beyond a typical pharmaceutical route. You mentioned rifaximin. That is a very common antibiotic used to treat SIBO. It's not the only one. So I'll point out other docs use other antibiotics, but rifaximin probably has some of the um, sort of leading the charge and research available on it in treatment of SIBO. So there are those options. And then functional practitioners, practitioners who have training in, let's say, botanical medicine, will also be able to offer op- options for herbal treatment. And it's really dependent on the patient. We talk about the pros and cons of each treatment. We know there's, there's, there's study evidence that, bo- that tre- these treatments can be equally as effective. Um, their treatment course is often different, so antibiotics can often do it a little bit more quickly, whereas herbal antimicrobials, you have to do a little bit longer. Um, but they can, they can definitely be equally as effective. Cost often becomes an issue. If your insurance doesn't cover rifaximin, it can be quite expensive out of pocket in, the term, in terms of thousands of dollars. Um, and so patients will often elect for herbal protocols, even though they have to pay for those out of pocket, but those are more in the, you know, hundreds of dollars range. 
And, um, and then side effects, right? Anything can have side effects. And uh, herbs don't have any less side effects than pharmaceutical options. So that's another thing to really talk through with patients. And so it becomes just a very person-specific, patient-specific um, approach about what's really going to be most effective for them and just most doable for them as a person. What are the benefits? I know one, for example, was the timing, that herbals took a little bit longer uh, than the antibiotics. Could you share a little bit about, so what are the key differences beyond the side effects and the cost? Mm -hmm. Um, how about timing, how long it takes to heal from each? Yeah, so it's, it's, again, it really depends on the degree of overgrowth, right? That gives us a sense kind of to the start about how long treatment might be required. Um, we then are able to calculate, okay, so maybe we might need two or three rounds of treatment here um, in order to proceed with um, addressing some of these bacterial overgrowth. Each round of treatment from a pharmaceutical standpoint is typically about two weeks. Each round of treatment for an antibiotic sampling is about a month. Now, doctors do it across the country, do it all different ways. So this is just one kind of the way, the way that I have been taught. Um, so timing is, is usually an issue. It's usually, it, might, it may take up to twice as long to address some of these bacterial overgrowth with herbs versus pharmaceuticals. That being said, some people um, in their particular overgrowth will respond much more quickly to, anti to herbs than pharmaceuticals or vice versa. So it's really hard to predict. Um, so we often go with what, what's going to work for the patient. I will say that herbs, unlike pharmaceuticals, do have a many, 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 many constituents, right? Pharmaceutical drugs um, and rifaximin or uh, the other antibiotics that are, that are being used to treat SIBO, they're all, you know, made in a lab and very much um, have one single chemical constituent, right? They're sort of refined down to this one constituent, which in, uh, in some ways is nice. We know exactly what's there and what's, what's being given to a patient. Um, in some ways, some people respond better because it's less things coming into their body, um, whereas herbs have many, many, many chemical constituents, hundreds of chemical constituents, and when you combine multiple herbs together, you just get a huge um, range of action and that we can't even predict necessarily everything that's happening when those, er when those herbs are working together. Um, but they do have broader effects. So instead of just going after bacteria, they'll often go after bacteria, yeast, viruses, parasites, et cetera. So they often can be used if patients potentially have co-occurring issues. We can use herbs um, with a little bit more success at addressing those conditions. Got it. No, that's, that really answers. How long does it take for a generalized case of SIBO to heal? And then how long, or I should say to get eliminated, and then how long for the gut to heal? Um, it's a really good question, and again, I, I feel like I'm coughing out every time I say this. It's very, very person-specific. So, you know, if we have just a moderate case of SIBO, you know, it may take anywhere from, you know, a month to two to clear the bacterial overgrowth itself. Now, the trick is not so much, you know, we can clear the bacterial overgrowth, but it's helping people prevent relapse. It's probably the most challenging aspect here. And it's often if you see, you know, on the Internet or doctors say, oh, no, I don't, I don't believe in SIBO because, you know, treatment never really works. It's often because of that. It's often people might feel better after treatment, but then they quickly relapse. And the reason they're relapsing is they're not addressing the underlying cause. It's probably the single um, biggest mistake um, when approaching SIBO is to fail to address that underlying cause to prevent 
relapse from happening. Um, and so if you can do that, and if you can, um, you know, address the SIBO, you know, prevent, prevent relapse effectively by addressing the underlying cause, you know, people might be feeling better as quickly as six months, you know. But I do like to mention more and more to patients that SIBO, like many conditions, can be chronic. And so we have to learn how do we manage this condition? How do we minimize our symptoms and manage this long term? So I don't usually use the term, you know, healing from or curing SIBO um, much anymore just because it's, it's more the rare case that is able to kind of fully recover and keep it gone without some form of intervention. Well, that's disheartening. And uh, what... <laughs> What general interventions do you typically recommend? So a lot of it comes down to either um, uh, something that helps to stimulate motility through the small intestine. So this is regardless of if patients have diarrhea or constipation. We go back to that original sort of what's the most common reason why people develop SIBO. It's potentially these gut infections that slow that janitorial cleaning wave. So we use often prokinetics, things that help to stimulate that cleaning wave. So that's right. one really, really helpful and a key for prevention. We also ensure that people's overall digestive function is really on board, that they're producing enough hydrochloric acid, pancreatic enzymes, um, that their stress is lowered so they can do all those things, and that they're eliminating properly. Like if constipation is a piece that we're really working on elimination, um, whether through use of laxatives or some, some sort of, you know, other additional treatments to make sure people's digestive system is working well. Um, and then lastly, usually, usually diet. And, I, and then I'm not a huge proponent of uh, major alterations in diet long term, but definitely using kind of helping somebody get to know what are their big dietary triggers can be really helpful in the long term prevention of SIBO from re returning. That does make a lot of sense. And I think that's in line with also what Ayurveda says, which is, heal your digestion, and a lot of issues will resolve. And so I think mm -hmm. on keeping your digestion working, that includes yeah. a Yeah, you can't, most people can't just go right back to their previous life, you know, after, you know, when I mentioned that it's a chronic condition, it's more, you know, we have to make all of these lifestyle changes, which are usually help making us feel better in a, in a whole number of ways and addressing a whole number of symptoms, maybe even beyond digestion. Um, that's what I'm talking about when we talk about really managing this as sort of a quote-unquote chronic condition. You've got to be taking care of yourself in order to prevent it from recurring. So who wants to do that? <laughs> I know, I know, it's hard. It's Let me hard. eat my it's pizza. Not a, it's not a quick fix, sadly, in a lot of cases. Um, I you know. know. There, are, there, are those, there are those cases that are that way, that are like, you know, miracle cures, and people feel fantastic, and they really don't need a lot of extra intervention. But I feel the majority, majority of folks really do need more long-term lifestyle shift to, to maintain health. But who does it? You know, any, any chronic, any disease state, you know, any diagnosis often needs that for true healing. So what are the biggest mistakes that you see in people who are trying to heal gut issues which are preventing them from getting to where they need to be? Mm, that's a good question. I think um, maybe two things sort of slightly related. Um, Seeing particular particular components of your digestion as separate from the rest of your body <laughs> is probably the biggest issue. Um, I talk a lot to a lot of patients with, I mean, I, every day I'm working with patients with chronic digestive conditions, and um, it's easy to, in our heads to start separating our gut from our body, um, and we don't really recognize the effect of stress predominantly 
on our gut health, um, other exposures on our gut health, other lifestyle factors on our gut health, um, such as, you know, elevated blood sugars, elevated uh, high, uh, blood pressure, um, um, even um, elevated cholesterol, things like that, uh, poor thyroid function, poor hormonal function, poor adrenal function, and, and um, um, cortisol dysregulation, poor sleep. You know, we start, if we separate all these parts of ourselves and try to treat them individually, our gut often doesn't get better. And so that's probably one of the biggest issues. Um, I'd say also um, that diet becomes a big focus with people with digestive issues, probably first and foremost, um, especially people who are natural, naturally minded, you know, they're going after a more functional medicine or natural medicine approach. I see us getting very hyper-focused on diet, what we're putting in, the foods we're putting in our body, um, and that that in and of itself can contribute to symptoms. It adds not only a lot of stress, it decreases the diversity of nutrients we're getting, and long-term can really impact our large intestine health. I think in folks working with SIBO in particular often restrict fiber quite a bit, vegetables and other fiber sources. Mm. And while that can help symptoms in the, in the immediate um, time frame, long-term it can have larger impacts on large intestine um, health and microflora. And so I think that can be a big thing for a lot of patients. And finally, our last question for our show, what are two or three hacks for healing from gut issues that you recommend to all your patients, specifically as they're trying to get their gut back to, to where it should be? That's a great question. Um, so I probably, if I were to think about what I recommend to all of my patients, um, it's, it's pretty simple. Um, I always talk to my patients about dueling posture. <laughs> kind of a fancier way of saying kind of the way we poop. <laughs> you know, how, how we position our bodies to have bowel movements. Um, you know, if you think about most of us, right, we go in, we sit on this nice toilet, which is high up off the ground, um, and it's almost like we're sitting in a chair. And if you can imagine, um, historically, evolutionarily, you know, we never sat on a chair to have a bowel movement, right? We were always squatting, and there's a reason for that. There's mus musculature that has to move out of the way to allow for a proper bowel movement. So I'd say stooling, what I call stooling posture, or having, you know, the way we sit when we have bowel movements, I talk to almost all of my patients, regardless of, regardless of if you have constipation or diarrhea um, as a chief complaint. Um, but definitely patients who are experiencing constipation, that's probably on the top of my list. And then I also say, and these two, these two things are related, one is mindful eating practices. Um, you cannot underestimate the power of improved digestion if you are eating in a mindful way. This means eating, when you're eating your meal, that is all you're doing. You are focusing on the meal. You are taking maybe a few breaths prior to the meal. You're smelling your food. You're becoming present prior to eating. You're not looking at your phone, your computer. You're not rushing from meetings. You know, you're really there eating your food. It turns out we have to be present with our food in order for our digestive system to work properly, in order for our stomach to produce enough acid, for our pancreas to release digestive enzymes, for our gallbladder to contract to release bile, for absorption to happen in our small intestines, for our immune function throughout our small intestines. We need all of those things to come online for proper digestion, and we can't do that if we eat distracted. So mindful eating is probably 
number one, um, in addition to schooling posture that I recommend to patients. And that's probably related to my third sort of kind of across-the-board recommendation, which is just bringing more mindfulness into our daily life. Um, we Stress is hugely impactful on digestive health. And if we're not addressing stress um, and the sources of our stress, even if we don't feel really stressed out, um, it's really hard to get well. So I think those, those are my top three in terms of, you know, quick lifestyle changes that I recommend to nearly every single one of my patients. It's interesting, you know, um, I was expecting you to say, well, I would recommend you take chlor uh, chlorella tablets or, <laughs> or um, slippery elm or, you know, yeah. Josh Axe's um, L-glutamine. And, yeah. and I love, I love that instead of referring to specific products, you are really, again, talking about lifestyle and saying, from how you poop to how you eat to mindfulness. And um, to be very honest, it's been a huge part of my healing, um, yeah. doing a daily meditation, sitting down and eating, which is something I didn't do for two decades. Yeah. You it's are absolutely huge. Mm -hmm. You are absolutely right. So those are, those are truly pearls that I think anyone listening to this interview can, can avail of and, and take advantage of, not just someone who's suffering from severe gut issues. I think that's just a great lifestyle recommendation. I want to thank you so much for taking time today um, out of your very busy schedule. How should our listeners or readers reach you if they're interested in a consult? And can you share a little bit about how your consults work? Yeah, so I, um, I see patients in Portland, Oregon um, at a clinic called Eight Hearts Health and Wellness. Um, and you can reach information about that clinic um, on my website, um, megantaylornd.com. Additionally, I do provide distance educational consults for patients who are out of the state who are looking for maybe a second opinion or set of eyes on their symptoms, their workup, and are looking for some additional ideas, things to pursue in terms of um, what they should ask their, their, their team of doctors for in regards to testing or options for treatment. Um, again, these, these particular distance consultations, I cannot be somebody's physician in these consults. Um, because I have to actually see the person, in, you know, in person in order to establish that therapeutic relationship. But I do help people, especially in regards to uh, SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. If you're having trouble help getting somebody to interpret your breath test, for example, that can be a, a place we can start just guidance in, in those sort of educational um, uh, ways. And again, information on how to schedule those consults can be found on my website. Fantastic. And I just want to share, you do do consults that are even short, right? So are you still yeah, doing... Yeah, absolutely. I do anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour-long consult. Um, 15 minutes are great for quick questions here and there. Um, if, we're, if we're seeing each other for the first time and you're really wanting to tell me more of your story, I recommend 30 or 60 minutes. But those 15-minute consults work great for quick questions here and there. The, they are fantastic. I really... Uh, again, thank you for offering those because for someone like yeah. myself that was really struggling to make very difficult decisions in the middle of a huge health crisis, um, you, you were like this oasis of answers for me. And all your answers were not only absolutely correct, they saved me from suffering for years and years uh, from just the simple information that you, you shared and the knowledge that you had. So, again, thank you so much. 
That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.